I'm going to begin with a citation from the 13th century Bishop of Lincoln, Robert Grosteste, who wrote uh, a great work on the six days of creation. Some, he says, have thought that the nature of water is suspended above the firmament, not in view of vaporous thinness, but in virtue of icy solidity. After all, the crystal stone, which is of great solidity and great transparency, is made from water by freezing. So it should not be surprising that up there, the upper water should be solidified in one great crystal. But, as Augustine says, however it may be that those waters are there, and of whatever kind they may be, let us not have the slightest doubt that they are there. The authority of this text of Scripture is greater than that of all the power of human ingenuity. Now that comment, as I suggest, alerts us to the danger of a facile identification of the meaning of Scripture with our own particular interpretation of the text. It encourages us to reflect on the interaction of general and special revelation. Why most of us today do not immediately understand the reference in Genesis 1 to the waters above the firmament in the, in the way Augustine and Grosteste did is due to advances in natural science rather than biblical studies. It is doubtful if any today hold that the authority of Scripture is tied to there being solid, icy, transparent, crystalline waters up there. Uh, now, since an adequate analysis of the history of interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 would take not only the rest of my lifetime, <laughs> but if the doctrine of reincarnation were true, several additional ones as well, I have decided to contract the title somewhat to aspects of pre-Copernican exegesis of Genesis 1. Uh, Highlights, perhaps, would perhaps be the better word. And we're going to start our journey through history in the second century with Irenaeus, who lived from about 130 to 200. Irenaeus and Christological interpretation. Irenaeus was particularly notable for opposing the major heresies of his day. And there were two principal ones. On the one hand, there was Marcion who argued, in fact, that the God who created is different from Jesus Christ, the God who Jesus Christ represented, thus disparaging creation and, of course, the Old Testament and much of the New as well. On the other hand, there were the Valentinian Gnostics, who held that Christ was simply uh, an emanation, a result of a series of outflows from the Supreme Being. And the material world was, in turn, far removed from the good. Now, in rebutting these heresies, Irenaeus affirms that there is one God the Father who created ex nihilo, from nothing, no previously existent material. And he created by his word, so that both creation and redemption 
are the result of the decision of the one God. Now, in doing this, he uses a very striking image based upon Genesis 1. And the image is that of the Father creating by his two hands, alluding to Genesis 1.26, and asserting creation ex nihilo, Irenaeus argues that God stood in need of no angel to help him, uh, quote, as if he did not possess his own hands. For with him were always present the word and wisdom, the Son and the Spirit, by whom and in whom, freely and spontaneously, he made all things, to whom also he speaks, saying, Let us make man in our image and likeness. The Son and the Spirit are both co-eternal with the Father and one with him, for they share in what is exclusively a work of God. So, in turn, and I quote, The Father plans and gives commands, the Son performs and creates, while the Spirit nourishes and increases. Now, Irenaeus goes on to expand and extend this metaphor to the creation of Adam in particular, and the incarnation of the second Adam. Never at any time did Adam escape the hands of God, he says. And for this reason, in the last times, his hands formed a living man in order that Adam might be created again after the image and likeness of God. Now, for Irenaeus, then, the whole of God's work of creation, providence and grace is carried out by his two hands, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, at first sight, of course, that appears to subordinate the Son and the Spirit to the Father in terms of their being simply agents of the Father. And to an extent, of course, this, this kind of view of the relation between the Son and the Spirit to the Father was, to an extent, endemic for the first 300 years or so. However, they are both unmistakably divine. They're always with the Father. There is but one God, but the Son is always with the Father, and the Spirit was present with him, anterior to all creation. In fact, it would undermine Irenaeus' opposition to Marcion if he were to infer in any way that the Son and the Spirit were inferior to God, the Father, because that indeed was uh, the central thrust of the Marcionite heresy, that there was this dual uh, deity. Irenaeus then, in his understanding of Genesis 1, prepares the way for a thoroughgoing Trinitarian approach to the whole of God's dealings with the world. This Trinitarian pattern is integrally tied to human history. For Jesus, the incarnate Son, recapitulates and corrects the history of Adam leading to the cross. Adam sinned, Adam disobeyed on the tree, the second Adam obeys God, and particularly and principally culminating in his obedience on the tree at Calvary. The Word of God became man, the Son of God became the Son of man, and I quote, so that what we had lost in Adam we might recover in Jesus Christ. That man, having been, been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. 
It's by union with the incorruptible and immortal one that we attain immortality and incorruption. The incarnation is integral to salvation. Now then, for Irenaeus, Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation account recorded there underlies the whole of salvation. Adam foreshadowing Christ, the second Adam. Both in his ex nihilo triadic view of creation and in his recapitulation theory, Irenaeus is building on the typological exegesis of Justin Martyr. Justin, earlier in the second century, um, in his apologetics, pointed particularly against Jewish uh, in, um, part, debating partners, pointed to the fact that the Old Testament throughout, throughout its ongoing history, pointed forward to and was fulfilled in and by Jesus Christ. Irenaeus assumes that, he builds on it, he constructs to the an ex nihilo doctrine of, crea of creation, a, tri a triadic view, and integrates creation with salvation as well in Christ the second Adam. His understanding of these chapters indeed is to be foundational, virtually axiomatic in later treatments of the chapters. We move now into the third century. Um, I hope there's room in the TARDIS. Um, and we will uh, have a look at Oregon, uh, 185 to 254. Oregon, who perhaps is one of the most controversial figures uh, in Christian history. Oregon discusses Genesis and creation in two of his major works. I have to qualify that. He wrote a commentary on Genesis, which unfortunately was lost with many other works of his, in the fire which engulfed the library, the great library at Alexandria. His opponents would say that was providential. Uh, others of us might say, well, what a pity. Um, in, in contrast, Celsus, written in about 246, uh, he re really rebutted a raft of accusations against Christianity by an opponent from the previous century. We only know of Celsus' views from Oregon's reply. Apparently, Celsus had dismissed the creation account as a web of sheer nonsense, pointing to an apparent contradiction between God creating the heavens and the earth in six days, and the later comment in chapter 2 verse 4 that he made them in one day. Oregon replies that Moses, of course, was hardly uh, forgetful of what he'd written earlier when he came on to chapter 2. Celsus, is in fact, was on weak ground regarding these six days indiscriminately since, and I quote, some of them elapsed before the creation of light and heaven and sun, moon and stars and some of them after the creation of these. Oregon points to distinctions in the meaning of the word day, yom, in the context and indicates that the creation of sun and moon on the fourth day requires the interpreter to distinguish between the first three and the last three of the six days. Moreover, he insists, in order to investigate the details of the Mosaic account of creation, we should need whole treatises. 
In 660, he mentions that earlier in this work and in his notes on Genesis, he found fault with those, quote, with those who, taking the words in their apparent meaning, said that the time of six days was occupied in the creation of the world. So Oregon opposes those who believe that creation took place in six days. Here he agrees that the apparent meaning is that creation occupied six days, but he argues that this interpretation is wrong. Now why? Why did he distance himself from this reading? It becomes clearer in his great work on uh, De Principius, on first principles, or more strictly periarchon, uh, the Greek, although the, uh, uh, most of his writing is preserved in Latin translation. In De Principius, Oregon uh, defends the Old Testament against critics who pointed to what they saw as abhorrent moral practices and logical absurdities. In doing so, he shows his strong reliance on Platonist philosophy and on a system of allegorical interpretation that had found favour in Alexandria from the time of the first century Jewish scholar Philo. Actually, I'm going to argue that Oregon does not engage in allegorical exegesis, but in multi-layered exegesis. And there's a very significant difference between those two, which I think we should find out as we go along. According to Oregon, human nature is tripartite, body, soul, and spirit. And scripture itself follows this pattern. The flesh, the body of scripture, the obvious interpretation is for the simple man. The man who's made some progress spiritually is going to benefit from the soul of Scripture, which contains moral precepts, while the one who is perfect or mature will be instructed by the Spirit, the spiritual law. The Holy Spirit's aim in all this is to teach us the latter, preeminent realities of a heavenly nature. These secret things are concealed behind a narrative which contains a record of the visible creation, the bodily sense, the flesh. This may convey useful teaching for the masses, but the spiritual man will seek to progress behind these, and I quote, stumbling blocks, hindrances and impossibilities. 4.1.15 Both Testaments contain history which did not actually occur. Scripture interweaves in the history, he says, and I quote, some events that did not take place, sometimes what could not have happened, sometimes what could but did not, and sometimes a few words are interpolated which are not true in their literal interpretation or acceptation, or meaning. Now, the, this is really for the benefit of the skillful. Uh, they may therefore give themselves to the toil, the hard work of investigating what's written in the Bible, and so penetrate beyond uh, to a meaning worthy of God. In other words, Oregon is basically saying that um, God has um, created Scripture in such a way as to enable biblical and systematic theologians to earn a living. <laughs> He says, um, nor even do the law and the commandments wholly convey what is agreeable to reason. 
Or who, ha- who that has understanding, quis igitur sane mentis, will suppose that the first, second, and third day, and the evening and the morning, existed without a sun, moon, and stars, and that the first day was, as it were, also without a sky. Who is of a sound mind will possibly believe that you could have had the first day um, and the second day on the third day without a sun, or the first day without a sky. Who is so foolish, he says, as to suppose that God planted a paradise in Eden? I do not suppose, he goes on, that anyone doubts that these things figuratively indicate certain mysteries, the history having taken place in appearance, and not literally. In short, according to Oregon, the literal or bodily interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 is impossible, as any intelligent reader, anyone with a sound mind, will realise. Clearly, Oregon firmly rejects a literal view of Genesis 1. It's obvious he wasn't reacting against Darwinian evolution. (laughs) Did his own Platonist leanings influence what he was able to see in the text, we might ask? He may not be the most reliable guide to understanding Genesis, but he had a lasting impact on generations of theologians and exegetes, and moreover, I would argue, he had a fine sense of the richness of the text of Scripture. It would be wrong, I would suggest, to dismiss Oregon here simply as as writing under the influence of Platonism. Certainly, his philosophical interests did impact his exegesis. In his homilies on numbers, he allegorizes 42 stages of Israel's journey from exodus to conquest on the basis of the 42 stages of the ascent of the soul. However, in practice, Oregon often neglects the intermediate moral sense and heads straight for the Christological or spiritual sense. Moreover, he respects the fleshly historical sense. His work on the Hexapla is proof of that. His excursions to Palestine investigating the historical details of the Bible reinforce it his literal understanding and application of Matthew 19, verse 12, should demonstrate that. Moreover, he expressly states that the first sense can edify those unable to understand the profounder meanings. It can improve the multitude according to their capacity. The order, in fact, he frequently follows is to explain the history and then direct his readers to the mystical, spiritual meaning, and then revert to the moral sense. Give an example of, outside Oregon, of what we do. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the bodily meaning, the historical meaning? Evidently, David, in some distress, uh, feeling abandoned by God, uh, expresses that in the psalm. But then we go straight to the Christological sense. Christ, the son of David, great David's greater son, in whom the covenant is fulfilled, utters that cry on the cross in dereliction. And then we come back to the moral sense and we can apply perhaps that passage to ourselves in times of extremity. 
So Oregon, you see, has this, this sense that scripture is not simply one-dimensional. It's far richer than that. As Henri de Lubac argues, he evokes the mystery of Christ under one or another of its aspects. The mystery is then applied to the Christian soul whose life is caught up with him. And in the final analysis, in the passages we have cited from Genesis, it is the text of Genesis that underlies his claims. We cannot accept that things happen as might superficially appear, says Oregon, since Genesis itself states that the sky was not formed until the second day, nor the sun created until the fourth day. Therefore, the sun could have had no relevance to the first three days. These could not be understood in relation to it. In Oregon's estimation, to ignore these details bespeaks an unsound mind. Now, we should also note Oregon's great reserve in expounding scripture and in pronouncing on anything other than what was established Orthodox Catholic doctrine. In an extract from his Genesis commentary preserved by the martyr Pamphilius, Oregon acknowledges that we are not ignorant of our ignorance. Um, as Irenaeus, Oregon favours the typological exegesis commonplace since the time of Justin a century earlier. All roads ultimately lead to Christ. Let's move on to the 4th century. Um, to Basil the Great and the days of creation. Basil wrote uh, I didn't write, he preached a series of Lenten sermons um, on the Genesis account in Genesis 1. There's a lot of human touches there, he remarks that it's getting dark now, it's time you went back to your home, and the next one, it's still obviously early morning, but he refers to his hearers as about to go out to their, to their work. I can't detain you much further, he says you, you need to go out your, your regular business. Somewhere the time between 370 was when Basil wrote this. Very different from Oregon. Basil, in fact, distances himself from Oregon's threefold interpretation. He doesn't name him, but it's obvious who he has in mind when he refers to those ingenious inventors of allegories who concoct old women's tales. He says, I know the laws of allegory, though less by myself than from the works of others. There are those truly who do not admit the common sense of the scriptures, for whom water is not water but some other nature, who see in a plant, a fish, what their fancy wishes, who change the nature of reptiles and of wild beasts to suit their allegories, like the interpreters of dreams who explain visions in sleep to make them serve their own ends. For me, grass is grass, plant, fish, wild beasts, Domestic animal, I take all in the literal sense. The key for Basil, um, oh, oh, let's skip over that. Basil remarks on the good order evident in creation. It's a work of art on display for all to admire, so they'll know who made it. Its different parts are in perfect accord, like a harmonious symphony sustained by the power of the creator. The world was created ex nihilo, it had a beginning not eternal, it will also come to an end. The invisible intellectual world was first created, 
then the visible world of the senses. The world was not conceived by chance and without reason, but for a fitting end, a purpose, a training ground, where rational souls learn to know God. Its beginning was instantaneous. Creation took place in less than an instant, in a rapid and imperceptible moment. The beginning is indivisible and instantaneous. I quote, Thus then, if it is said, in the beginning God created, it is to teach us that at the will of God the world arose in less than an instant. And it is to convey this meaning more clearly that other interpreters have said, God made summarily, that is to say, all at once and in a moment. As created, the world was invisible, either because man was not yet made or because it was submerged beneath the water that overflowed the surface. The earth was still incomplete. Um, the first word of God created light, a primitive light, determined by God. This occurred on the first day, or as Basil emphasizes, on one day. Why does scripture say one day and not the first day? It is to determine the measure of day and night, he says. 24 hours make up one day. It's the time taken by the heavens, starting from one point to return there. But was there a mysterious reason for this? Root, he says, this is called one day to establish the relationship between time and eternity. Both revolve upon themselves in cycles, going nowhere. He states, it follows that we are hereby shown not so much limits, ends, and succession of ages as distinctions between various states and modes of action. Thus, it is in order that you may carry your thoughts forward towards a future life that Scripture marks by the word one, the day which is the type of eternity, the first fruits of days, the contemporary of light, the Holy Lord's Day, honoured by the resurrection of our Lord. So Basil then has a typological, you might say anagogical, uh, reference here to the future, the fulfilment, heaven, uh, and the resurrection. There is, a, there is purpose, in other words, in the account of creation. It's an eschatological purpose. At the same time, of course, Basil has adopted a more literal view, which uh, one might suppose would be compatible with viewing those days as 24 hours. He gives hints of that but he doesn't develop that at all. Later, Basil connects the fourth day, when God created the luminaries, sun and moon, with the first day, or one day, when light was made. On the first day, the nature of light was produced. Uh, and on the fourth day, the luminaries. It's an idea he doesn't develop. Second, third, fourth centuries, let's move on into the fifth. We're making progress, albeit slowly, with Augustine and instantaneous creation. There are three main works where Augustine discusses creation at some length. In his De Civitate Dei, 413-426, in a section composed in 417-418, he stresses that God created the world, it's not eternal, 
Its well-ordered changes and movements testified to this. Time was also created. As for the days of creation, it is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible for us to conceive and how much more to say. If we compare these days with our days, we recognise the difference easily. I quote, Our ordinary days have no evening but by the rising of the sun. But the first three days of all are passed without sun, since it is, it is reported to have been made on the fourth day. As for the light, and I quote, It is beyond the reach of our senses. Neither can we understand how it was, and yet must unhesitatingly believe it. It was either some material light, or under the name of light, it signified the holy city. When scripture recounts these days, it never mentions night, only morning and evening. And so on and so forth. The days of creation are therefore stages in the creature's knowledge of creation, either in itself or in praise and love of God. Um, the morning is the knowledge of uh, creation uh, in the light of God, the Word, and the evening, the knowledge of uh, creation in itself. Uh, there's no mention in Genesis, um, that the duration of days, as I said, is beyond our knowledge. There's no mention in Genesis of the creation of angels. However, God rested on the seventh day from all the works he had made. While before the creation of heaven and earth, he seems to have made nothing. Scripture elsewhere describes the angels as made by God. Therefore, the angels were made at some point covered by the six days. They were made before the stars, according to Job 38, 7, and thus before the fourth day. They could not have been created on the third or second days, those referred particularly to the earth, so therefore they were made on the first day. There's no question then that they are the light called day whose unity scripture recognises by calling that day one day. Here Augustine mentions that the second and subsequent days are not other days than the one day. Rather the same one day is repeated to complete the number six or seven. He may have borrowed this from Ambrose. So that there should be knowledge both of God's works and of his rest. Now these themes are developed at length by Augustine in his earlier work in Genesis in Ad Literam, literal meaning of Genesis. He also wrote a, a work on the literal meaning of Genesis against the Manichees, but it's to the larger one which I'm referring. He constantly probes the text of Genesis throughout with questions. He is greatly interested in number theory. Uh, particularly that God apportioned creation into six days. Six, he says, is a perfect number. And indeed, it's, 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 the, it's the sum of its parts, and it's the smallest of such numbers. It has three parts, which when added together make six. One plus two plus three. God, therefore, accomplished the works of his creation in six days, a perfect number of days. Even more intriguing for Augustine, is that creation is ordered like the number six, which rises in three steps, one plus two plus three. On one day, light was created. On the two following days, the universe was created in its higher and lower parts. 
On the remaining three days, those things were created that are contained in the universe. This supports the words of Scripture, you have ordered all things in measure, number and weight. The number six is not perfect because God creates all things in six days, but rather God created in six days because the number six is perfect. After six days, God rested from creating new things and now works by governing what he made. Now, Augustine now turns to consider the nature of these six days. The seven days of our experience follow each other, one after the other in succession, marking off the division of time. Those first six days, however, occurred, and I quote, in a form unfamiliar to us as intrinsic principles within things created. Hence, evening and morning, like light and darkness, that is, day and night, did not produce the changes that they do for us with the motion of the sun. This we are clearly forced to admit with regard to the first three days, which are recorded and numbered before the creation of the heavenly bodies. God finished the works of creation at the conclusion of the sixth day, so it is not clear when he created the seventh day, for on that day he rested from all he made. In fact, he did not create it. But in that case, how could he have rested on a day he did not create? The solution to this enigma, Augustine finds, is that God created only one day, which recurred seven times, and by its recurrence, many days passed by. So it wasn't necessary for God to create the seventh day, for it was made by the seventh recurrence of the one day he had created. As for the obvious problem of how God made present seven times the light he had made on the first day, this is beyond our experience. We do not know, especially since it relates to the spiritual dimension of creation, the knowledge of the angels. Evening and morning are the knowledge of the angels, knowing the creation in itself, evening, and in the light of the word of God, morning. So, all creation was finished by the sixfold recurrence of the day whose evening and morning consists in angelic knowledge. The angels knew the things created in God in whom they were made, and in themselves as they were actually made. Thus, the day which God has made recurs not by a material passage of time, but by spiritual knowledge. These days are beyond the experience and knowledge of us mortal earthbound men. In fact, he warns, if we want to understand this, we ought not to rush forward with an ill-considered opinion as if no other reasonable and plausible interpretation could be offered. Our terrestrial days indeed recall the days of creation, quote, but without in any way being really similar to them. Now, Augustine denies that this is a figurative or allegorical interpretation. Material light is not literal light, and the light to which Genesis refers only metaphorical. Rather, this latter light, the light recorded in Genesis, is more excellent, and therefore more true than the material light which we experience. But Augustine doesn't advance this interpretation dogmatically. He doesn't rule out the possibility that a better one may be found. I could go on, but I think we've 
seen sufficient of Augustine to recognize uh, um, the gist of what he says. I'm going to pass over Bede at this point and just make a, a cursory reference to Anselm, who in his Codeus Homer, written at the end of the 11th century, uh, discusses the interpretation of, the crea- of Genesis 1 very, very briefly and tangentially, and argues incidentally that the majority of exegetes held to the interpretation which Augustine propounded. Augustine wrote in around 420, Anselm's writing in 1098. That's nearly seven centuries later. So if you're ever likely to say that there is a majority opinion about Genesis 1 and 2 in the pre-Copernican age, it is to Augustine that you go. Indeed, as we shall find, those who differed from him felt compelled to identify their views in relation to Augustine. And that tells us that his interpretation ruled the roost, and in fact did so for the majority of the history of the Christian church in the West. I'll move on to Robert Grosse-Tester, who I quoted at the beginning. 1168-1253 were his dates, and what I would term a synthetic interpretation. I mean, we're accustomed to think that if you hold view A, therefore you're opposed to view B or C. Whereas Grosse-Tester basically took the position, if you hold view A, then why not view B and view C as well? Let's combine as much as we possibly can. Um, he, he wrote a volume, The Hexamera, and Six Days of Creation, and effectively um, synthesized, brought together all the major interpretations hitherto given. He builds, on the one hand, on Oregon's method interpretation, and follows this consistently, deviating only to present a six-fold interpretation to match the six days of creation. He accepts Augustine's idea that the six creation days exist because of the perfection of the number six. There are then, he says, to sum up six different ways of understanding and expounding this opening which deals with the creation of the world in six days. Perhaps these six ways of expounding are hinted at by the six days and their works. The archetypal world is the primeval light, the generation of the word. The second day could be the created intelligence of the angels. The third day is the bringing of matter and form into existence, out of nothing. The fourth day is the foundation and ordering of the church. The fifth day is the formation of the wavering soul through the waters of baptism. The sixth day is the making of the visible world in time, over six days. There are unmistakable traces of Oregon, Reinforced later when Grosse-Tester expounding the third day states earth can also mean the literal sense of scripture which feeds the simple with the humble simplicity of a moral interpretation just as animals are fed by some herbs. The lofty heights of the allegorical and anagogical interpretation give fruit to the wise and are like great trees that give food in rational human beings. This spiritual sprouting from the spiritual earth is seen by God with a gaze of good pleasure. He sees that it is good. 
He also sees the natural sprouting from the natural earth and sees that this is good, as signifying the, as signifying the spiritual sprouting in all its natural properties and benefits. Hence, whatever the natural sense of the text, it's there to signify spiritual realities that transcend it. Grotesca appears to support the idea that the six days are of 24 hours duration. However, this overall interpretative framework must be borne in mind. For instance, in discussing the first day, he argues that the creation of light was physical light, according to the literal sense, and this light on the first three days was at 24 equinoctial hours. However, in the same breath, he discusses at length objections to this position and considers Augustine's claim, without disapproving it, that the days consisted in the knowledge of the angels. In short, he uses the multiple senses of Scripture to support a wide variety of interpretations. The most valuable meaning lies behind the natural sense. Grosstester also considers the literary structure of the chapter. The luminaries, sun, moon, stars, are placed in the middle on the fourth day. He sees a chiasmus. It's fitting to the beauty of a disposition that when things are disposed according to an odd number, the first should match the last, the second the penultimate, the third the antipenultimate, and so on, until one reaches the one in the middle, which has a special privilege relative to the things that are disposed on either side. So light was created on the first day, the first of the works of God, while God rested from his works on the seventh day. If the light is the mind of the angels turned back to God, there is a matching of light and rest, since the light of the mind of the angels in God's eternity is in a state of greatest rest. The firmament made on the second day is compared to the animals and man on the sixth, for the firmament contains and envelops bodily things, while man contains worldly things within his power. Plants created on the third day, dried of waters, match the things begotten in the waters on the fifth. Grosstester also sees a pattern of ordering and adornment, ordering the first three days, adornment four through six. The adornment consists in the adorning of the bodies made on the first three days. The adornment matches the ordering. First made is light, day one. Then comes the firmament, day two, and the gathering of the waters. Then the dry land and things fixed into the land by roots, day three. Once these things are established in that order, in a matching order, day four, the firmament is adorned by luminaries. Day five, the air and water are adorned with birds and fish. Six, the earth is adorned with animals and human beings. The luminaries are therefore part of another creation than the first. They belong to the adornment of the firmament. You can see here that ideas such as this are built upon much later in the framework interpretation. This does not exhaust the structural possibilities for Grosstester. Um, I'm going to triangular arrangements which he constructs triangles and, and all kinds of things. Uh, important point to note, underlying Grosstester's structural suggestions 
is the statement in connection with the fourth day and for seasons tells us, following hints from Augustine, that time begins only with fourth day. Therefore, he says, the three days before this were not days of time, but should be distinguished in the mind of angels. The evening and the morning were the beginning and the end of the thing created, or the formation of the living and the privation of its form or something similar. Uh, he points out that even among those who thought that the first three days were days of time, two senses of time were to be distinguished. In one sense, time means the extent of duration that passes from future expectation through the present to the past. This existed even when there were no luminaries. On the other hand, time also refers to what comes to be through the stars, the kind of measurements that mark our own time. A few years later, a generation or so, Aquinas and the structure of Genesis 1. Uh, as far as I know, Aquinas didn't actually write a commentary on Genesis, but in the Summa Theologia, he discusses these questions to arise from, from the text. He understands Genesis 1 to convey a threefold division, creation, distinction, and adornment. First is the work of creation itself, denoted by Genesis 1.1. In this, the heaven and the earth were produced, but without form. Then, the first three days concern the work of distinction, in which various parts of creation are distinguished from one another, the heaven, water, and the earth. Heaven and earth were perfected either by giving them form, as Augustine held, or by granting the intrinsic order and beauty due them. The final three days are devoted to the work of adornment, in which the distinguished parts of heaven and earth are beautified by things having movement. On day four, lights are given to adorn the heaven. On day five, birds and fish are created to beautify the air and water. On day six, animals are brought forth to live and move on the earth. The first part, then, is distinguished on the first day and adorned on the fourth, the middle part distinguished on the middle day and adorned on the fifth, and the third part distinguished on the third day and adorned on the sixth. A generation or so after Grace Tester, Aquinas also provides a basic groundwork, of course it's anachronistic to say anticipated it, but he provides the groundwork for what later and now is known as the framework interpretation. That structure has been observed since at the very latest the 13th century not the 19th not something produced in response to Charles Darwin and his ideas um, Aquinas asks how this relates to Augustine's position and finds no incompatibility for the works of creation and adornment could be said to take place within particular days while creation itself could be simultaneous Indeed, on the question of whether the days were one day repeated seven times, as Augustine, referring to the order of things known rather than things produced, or, as others held, they refer to an order of things produced, Aquinas holds the difference is more apparent than real. 13th century, 16th, Martin Luther, rather different. In his lectures on Genesis, 1535, Luther refers to Jerome's comment that the rabbis prohibited anyone under 30 from expounding the first chapter of Genesis. 
They wanted, he says, to have a good knowledge of Scripture before getting to this chapter. Luther claims there was no one who had explained everything in the chapter with adequate skill. Possibly, I would suggest, a blanket con condemnation of the exegetical tradition of Augustine. For he asserts that we know from Moses that the world came into existence 6,000 years ago. Theologians, Luther argued, had agreed on ex nihilo creation, but little else. Luther, as you might expect, rejects allegorical interpretation and prefers a straightforward, li literal view. Nor does it serve any useful purpose, he says, to make Moses at the outset so mystical and allegorical. Therefore, as the proverb has it, he calls a spade a spade. That is, he employs the terms day and evening without allegory, just as we customarily do. Moses spoke in the literal sense that the world with all its creatures was created within six days, as the words read. Luther thinks the chapter was written for those with little learning, um, passing over information that scientists and philosophers would deal with. Calvin uh, wrote at length on divine accommodation in relation to Genesis, in the preface of his commentary on Genesis 1554, he stresses that we are unequal to the task of examining the works of God in creation. Our capacity is too contracted. Our tongue is equally incapable of giving a full and substantial account. Consequently, if we wish to benefit from a study of the works of God, we must bring with us a sober, docile, mild and humble spirit. God reveals himself in creation, Calvin emphasizes. We know the invisible God through his works. The Lord, wishing to invite us to the knowledge of himself, places the fabric of heaven and earth before our eyes, rendering himself in a certain manner manifest in them. The heavens are eloquent heralds of his glory, the beautiful order of nature proclaiming his wisdom. In short, the world is a mirror in which we can see God, for, quote, he clothes himself with the image of the world in order to present himself to our contemporaries. He is, quote, magnificently arrayed in the incomparable vesture of the heavens and the earth. Nothing more beautiful in appearance can be imagined. Now, Calvin teaches, of course, the world was created, it's not eternal. There are places where he argues that the world is 6,000 years old and creation took place within six literal days. Although, as Tony Lane has said about Calvin, uh, nailing Calvin down is rather like handling a, gre a greased ferret. <laughs> you think you have the ferret in your hand, but it slips out very easily. Um, The one orthodox figure he opposes, though he does not mention him by name here, is actually the one he quotes more than anyone else, and that's Augustine. Commenting on chapter 1, verse 5, where the first day is mentioned, he says, Here the error of those is manifestly refuted who maintain that the world was made in a moment. You see that those who adopt views other than Augustine are forced to identify their views in relation to and in contrast from Augustine, which simply tells you the monumental effect that Augustine had had here 1,100 years afterwards. 
Um, the majority of church history encompassed in that, in that section of time. Uh, he points, Calvin points, to the linguistic error that lay behind the interpretation of Ecclesiasticus, 18 verse 1. Note the different canon there as well. The Greek word Augustine cited, koine, common, does not refer to time, but to all things universally. Augustine, of course, knew little Greek and even less Hebrew. Um, now, Calvin suggests he, he, um, that he favours the 24-hour day view of creation in Institutes 1, 14, 1 and 2, where he also argues that the earth is less than 6,000 years old, and where he expresses a preference for the more literal interpretations of Basil and Ambrose, 1, 14, 20. However, we must bear in mind two vital principles he unfolds in his discussion of the chapter. The first is divine accommodation. The account, Calvin says, is given here for our sake, to teach us that God has made nothing without a certain reason and design. In considering the separation of light and darkness on the first day, and reflecting on the differences in the ancient world in reckoning when the day began and ended, Calvin says that Moses, quote, accommodated his discourse to the received custom. God, again I quote, accommodated his works to the capacity of men, fixing our attention and compelling us to pause and reflect. The text relates exclusively to the visible form of the world, the garniture of that theatre which he places before our eyes. This follows Calvin's overall claim that God in all his revelation accommodates himself to our capacity. It's been persuasively argued that for Calvin, God speaks to us in the prattling babble of baby talk. Balbutira, to prattle, is a favourite verb of Calvin's in this connection. Again, Calvin describes Genesis 1 in terms of the distinction adornment model of Gross, Tester and Aquinas in Institutes 1, 13, 14. Thus, it is as idle to speculate on the time of creation, when it was made, as on the space of creation, where it was made. Uh, secondly, in his Genesis commentary, he does not deal directly with the length of the days of creation. He refused to speculate, confining himself to what was clearly revealed. But the second major point, besides divine accommodation, is that Calvin insists on the integrity of scientific activity. In discussing the seeming impossibility of having waters above the firmament and how this might appear to contradict common sense, Calvin says, to my mind, this is a general principle, that nothing is here treated of but the visible form of the world. He would learn astronomy and other recondite arts, let him go elsewhere. In short, Genesis does not teach astronomy or other recondite arts. It speaks in the simple language of everyday observation. A casual reader might think Calvin was dismissive of science in this statement. This, I'd suggest, is not so. Indeed, if we reflect on the connection between Calvin's comment here and the citation I made right at the beginning, we'll see that he is correcting Augustine and Gross-Tester on the basis of scientific discovery. 
I'll omit a long section where he talks about the fact that the moon and the sun in Genesis are the greater and the lesser lights, whereas from astronomy, of course, we know that Saturn is much bigger. He recognises the, the, the reality and truth of astronomy, but says basically Genesis is not talking in that turn. It's talking in terms of everyday observation, which simple people down through the centuries can understand. Finally, just a couple of comments about 16th century Reformed confessions and the Westminster Assembly in particular. The classic Reformed confessions treat creation with some reserve. The French Confession, 1559, concentrates on creation as a work of the Trinity, chapter 7. The Scots Confession, 1560, stresses the sovereign action of God in creating all things for his own glory, articles 1 and 2. The Belgic Confession, 1561, states that the Father created ex nihilo all creatures as it seemed good to him, giving to every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its creator, Article 12. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, focuses on the ex nihilo nature of God's creative act and does not remotely come near mentioning the process of creation, question 26. Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, attempts a Trinitarian doctrine of creation and opposes the Manichaean idea that evil was co-created, Article 7. The 39 Articles of the Church of England, 1563 and 71, do not deal with creation at all. This absence of any reference connected even remotely to the interpretative questions of Genesis 1 and 2 establishes that particular conclusions on the exegesis of this or that biblical passage were not confessional issues in the Reformed churches, as indeed they have not been in the church historically. These indeed were not matters of definition, since they were neither matters of controversy nor even discussion, despite the varying views in exegetical history who examined theses discussed in universities, settings in the 16th century, where um, theologians and their students batted around major theological questions of the day. You don't find questions on interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, at least to my knowledge. I may stand corrected there, but as far as I've been able to investigate. Um, they were not matters of definition, since they were neither matters of controversy or even discussion. Consistently, the confessions present theological accounts of creation without reference to the exegesis of Genesis. As Rogland comments, there is nothing in the three forms of unity which could even remotely be considered as requiring a particular interpretation of the hexameron. Westminster Assembly and its neglect of scientific developments one of the most astonishing features of English Puritan theology in general, and the Westminster theology of divines in particular, is the virtually complete absence of interest in creation. It's as astounding in view of the scientific, cultural and philosophical ferment of the time spearheaded by the work of Copernicus. My searches in Pollard and Redgrave and Wing unearthed not a single work devoted to Genesis composed by any member of the Westminster Assembly or other leading Puritan before 1647. Only two works on creation came from the pens of the Westminster Divines, those who were members of the Westminster Assembly, 
at or before the time the assembly sat. The debates on creation at the assembly have to have been non-controversial. There's no real mention in the minutes. Of the con- I've just submitted a book, uh, manuscript, publication on Westminster theology at Westminster Assembly. Um, evidently, the Puritans were too concerned with afflicted consciences, uh, Greenham and Perkins, or with lifting up the downcast, Bridge, as the Scots with opposing popish ceremonies, Gillespie. Um, there were, only, as I say, two books on creation penned by the Westminster men. John Lightfoot, very learned Episcopalian, considered most of the days of Genesis 1 to be solar days, although he claimed that the first day lasted for 36 hours rather than 24. George Walker's History of the Creation is a substantial work exploring a variety of aspects of the theology of creation. Walker combined aspects of the interpretations of Augustine, Grosstester and Aquinas and the literal theory. He distinguished between immediate creation, which was instantaneous, and immediate creation, whereby God formed the world in the space of six days. He combined this with a literalist view of the six days, but wrote of these as immediate creation. He also recognised that the first three days are parallel to the second group of three, showing a kinship, as I say, with Grosstester and Aquinas. Walker was inclined to think that creation took place on the morning of the 21st of March, 3927 BC, 3,960 years before Christ's death. Since the six days were each of 24 hours, the first day entailed equality between light and darkness throughout the world, and so occurred on an equinox. Spring was more appropriate than autumn, since it allowed for the growth of the vegetation described on the third day. This argument implies that Walker uh, may not have been aware uh, that the earth was spherical, simply because, of course, uh, the spring equinox for him would be the autumnal equinox in the southern hemisphere. Oh, run out of my paper. Anyway, I can sum up, um, which I think kind of illustrates the point which I which I made just a moment ago that there is a certain neglect of scientific developments. Now, to an extent, it's understandable since uh, the whole country was in a, a, a milestone of political and theological pressure of the civil wars. And of course, before that, there had been immense oppression from Archbishop Lord and so forth. But at the same time, failure to address development since Copernicus was a grave mistake in the sense that uh, it paved the way for the emergence of the Enlightenment in the years to come. A failure to to, to address contemporary scientific and uh, cultural philosophical questions simply um, left uh, the church, we might say, all but defenceless in, 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 in the following years. To sum up, um, I think the, the main point is that there was a, pre- oh, here we are, uh, a, a plethora of interpretations 
over, over, over this, this time um, in, in the Western Church on Genesis 1 and 2. If the text of Genesis 1 and 2 is so clear-cut, why did the church down the centuries not see it that way? Does not, that not say something not only about the interpreters, but also about the text? Within an orthodox theology, a pluriformity of views has always existed on how to interpret these chapters. Within the boundaries of the universally accepted reality that creation is an ex nihilo work of the triune God, made in Christ, and looking forward to the fulfilment of God's promises and work in him. The closest to a consensus was the interpretation of Augustine, but those who differed felt compelled to distance themselves from him. Underlying all this was widespread agreement on typological and Christological interpretation. Second, we will be wise to heed the warnings that Augustine and Calvin give on the difficulty of interpreting these chapters, and so beware of dogmatic claims they themselves did not advance. Jerome pointed the, to the Jewish rabbi's refusal to let anyone under 30 interpret it. Creation transcends our knowledge and experience. A heavy dose of Job 38 is in order. Where were you, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, surely you understand, you know so much. And that alerts us to the fact that as with any other passage of scripture, Genesis 1 and 2 must be interpreted in the context of the whole of scripture, not in isolation. The mere fact that it occurs first in the Hebrew, Greek and English Bible does not mean that we read it by itself. We should interpret it in the light of the whole, just as we would interpret Revelation or Romans, or Hebrews, in the light of the rest of Scripture. Third, until the mid-16th century, the interpreters we cited were all abreast of the philosophy and science of their day, and often made use of it in biblical interpretation. That we reject many of their scientific beliefs is because of our own scientific knowledge, that we place implicit faith in the laws of gravity is due to what we know from experience and from science rather than from the Bible. God has revealed himself in creation. Human scientific theories, of course, have as their support the, the paradigm which is presented for us there. Man made in the image of God, the world reflecting the glory of God, and man given the task to subdue the earth. Human scientific theories must be tested rigorously and assessed in the light of Scripture. So too must biblical exegesis be rigorously assessed in the light of both special and general revelation and the organic nature of Scripture. And fourthly, the Reformed tradition interpreted creation theologically it adopted a mutually interactive relationship between interpretation of the Bible, on the one hand, 
and the theological prism derived from the Bible through which such interpretation was to be conducted. An excellent article by J.I. Packer in the first edition of Themelios uh, spelt that out. The interpretation of particular passages of Scripture were never made a confessional issue. Thank you very much.